Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and you're listening to Into Music from the KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our guest for Into Music Episode 2 is Peter Jesperson, author of the acclaimed 2023 book Euphoric Recall, a half-century as a music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker. In the book's pages, Jesperson recalls his decade at the legendary Minneapolis, Minnesota record store or folk joke opus, discovering, managing, recording, and touring with the replacements, co-founding the independent record label Twin Tone, his struggles with substance abuse, and his time as an executive at New West Records, and much more. In this conversation, Jesperson, who now lives in Los Angeles, discusses the impact that radio host and musician Tony Glover had on him, his friendships with musicians Curtis Olmsted and Bob Slim Dunlap, and he also shares a number of memories from his days in South Minneapolis. That's on Into Music, coming up now. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you, too. It's great to meet you, too. Of course, I, I want to talk about the book, and, and I've also asked you to, to be on because I want to talk about musical mentorship. But in Euphoric Recall, my current hometown, Wichita, Kansas, makes an appearance because you came here with the replacements. And there is a, a story that has circulated over the years that that night, I think it was at the Coyote Club, that Art Bush, the owner, had sort of pulled the plug on the band. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. What I what I do remember, I, I remember we stayed at a place, I think it was called the Rock Motel. And they were little cottages. And they were really kind of quaint and a little, maybe slightly dilapidated, but we just thought it was cool as hell. I think I still have a matchbook from there, of all things. And I remember there not being very many people there at the beginning but that it filled up pretty good by you know the time they were halfway through the set or whatever and i don't remember it being a debacle specifically so um but you know a lot of those shows kind of all blur together and of course i was probably partaking a little more than i should have back in the day so some of the memories are hazy yeah, I'm sorry if I can't, uh, you know, clarify that for you or confirm. No, it's okay. I I, uh, I had heard that story, and uh, one day I was I was able to ask Art about that. I said I heard you pulled the plug on the replacements, and he simply said, "Some people are nice when they've been drinking, and some people are not." <laughs> and uh, I think it it just got into a point where the band just kept playing louder, and he said, "That's it." But he said, don't worry, everybody had a good time. So, huh. okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, what I, my memory of it, and it seems like I've talked about somebody, talked about this with somebody fairly recently that my, in my memory, it looked like it wasn't going to go well and that there wasn't going to be much of an audience and that the audience ended up, the room ended up filling up, as I said, and that it ended up being kind of a fun show. So maybe it was fun on our side of things and it wasn't fun for the owner. And if so, I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, thank you for, for sharing that with me. And um, for, for people who maybe don't know, you know, Minneapolis in, in the 70s, you were working at Orfolk, which is in this really cool neighborhood, kind of in a weird way, the sort of an epicenter of the music scene, because 
that's there. The CC Club, where a lot of musicians met, was close by. So there was kind of a synergy in that place, right? There was. Well, it was South Minneapolis, and it it, it was kind of, um, as I say in the book, it was a bohemian sort of neighborhood anyway. But once the record store opened there and gained some traction, it really became a magnet. And And you know, I don't mean to sound like I'm patting myself or ourselves on the back, but it really it became people moved into that neighborhood to be close to Orfolk. It's it's sort of it's it's hard for me to talk about this without sounding like I'm bragging. But it really it was and and there's lots of record stores around the world and cities that were like this, that that became kind of clubhouses uh, for a real you know, intense music listeners, but that's that's certainly what we were. And we were the only game in town for a long time. There were other stores that were good. Certainly um, used records was a big deal at the time I started coming into retail. You know, you'd always found, you know, secondhand records in garage sales or Salvation Army stores or Goodwill stores or whatever. But to have an actual retail outlet dedicated to selling used records was a new thing. So there were a number of those springing up, and Orfolk came in, benefited from that. But we really had an angle that wasn't super specific musically. It was just an angle of, I guess, a real kind of deep music appreciation of all different kinds. And we welcomed all all comers Um we had, as I pointed out also in the book, we had a huge crowd of people that bought disco records from us. And we th- that that became such a scapegoat for especially what came after the punk rock new wave movement. Everybody was, oh, that crap, that disco crap and that progressive rock crap and that singer songwriter crap. And it's like, what are you talking about? There were lots of great records of all those genres and there were lots of crappy records in in the punk rock new wave that came after so come on you know i mean it's just like any kind of music there's good and bad and and it's subjective so some of it may appeal to you and some of it may not it's uh it's just the way it went but orfolk was really a, it, it just was a, a, a an amazing place to to be and, and to have spent a decade there was 10 of the best years of my life part of this is is of course talking about mentorship and obviously in in the book your role as a as a mentor to musicians and and people who were going to the record store and going to um, the Longhorn when you were DJing and so forth, you were able to kind of turn them on to music. Who was kind of your person that opened the door for you and said, "Okay, there's all of this music." In my early days. Uh, radio was really where I heard music, and and of course that's all different now. But uh, so radio was 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 a, a in in general was a, a mentor for me, and also I had a big brother who was a folk a guitar player. And actually, ended up going into bluegrass, so he was very influential on me, and just his intense love of music is something I admired, and and and. Um, uh, you know, I, I saw how important it was to him, and and uh, I think that I developed an interest in it because of that. But for me, really, the first serious mentor I had was a guy named Tony Glover, uh, who you may be familiar with. He was a, an amazing uh, harmonica player, part of a group called Kerner Ray and Glover, uh, actually the first Minnesota group to be signed to a major label before Bob Dylan even. Uh, they were signed to Elector Records in 60 or 61 by Jack Holzman. 
so they were very influential as a group. But in 1968, Tony got a gig on a local top 40 radio station. He'd come on the air at midnight and play records until 5 a.m. And it was, uh, I, as I say here in my music room, uh, probably half of my record collection is uh, is his fault. So Tony Glover would be my first real serious musical mentor. He was, uh, I, I mean, I think of, there's so many things I could go on and on about it. But briefly, I think uh, I remember hearing I want you. She's so heavy for the first time on Tony Glover's show, you know, sleeping out in a friend's fort when I was 69, I would have been 15, 15 years old. And actually hearing Tony say he had a very kind of droll, quiet way of speaking. And he was very uh, never in a rush. And I remember him saying, hey, I got a new album by the Beatles. It's called Abbey Road. Here's a song called I Want You, She's So Heavy. And we all got on the floor of our fort and put our ears right up to the transistor radio and listened. And that song was so unusual. You just never, of course, never heard the Beatles do anything like it. And then that dead stop at the end just kind of scared us. So Tony was important in that respect. I, I, I'm sure um, I, I remember him actually being the voice that told me Brian Jones had died. Uh, what was one of the other things? Oh, well, he played, he used as his theme song, he used uh, Repent While Purgus by Procol Harum uh, as his introduction every night. And so I, 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 of course, loved Whiter Shade of Pale, but that sent me down the whiter, the uh, Procol Harum rabbit hole. I, and, and one of the other funny stories about Tony was, I remember one night he actually played Toad by Cream, uh, which is, if you know, from Wheels of Fire, it's one whole side of a, a drum solo by Ginger Baker. I mean, only Tony Glover would have played that on the radio in, in 1968, 69. It sounds like he was kind of a, a musical omnivore, and that was also a time where you could be that. Yes, yeah, he very much, very much was, and I think that that's a a quality that maybe I found less in other cities. And one of the things I'm proudest of in Minneapolis is that we really did embrace the arts in general. It's always been an arts town, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And 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 within music, I mean, really, uh, at Orfolk, for instance, you know, we had a hardcore punk rock, punk rock audience. But when that first uh, Ricky Lee Jones record came out in 1978, we went crazy over it. We played it so much in the store, it finally wore down a lot of the hardcore punk rockers, and they were buying Ricky Lee Jones too. I mean, so I think that we had a there was something about Minneapolis where people were, I uh, had their arms open, their ears open. Uh, for all different kinds of music. And, and you know, so when we heard things like, you know, we loved The Clash, but when we heard Joe Strummer saying no more Elvis Beatles or the Rolling Stones in 1977, we were all kind of going, what? Why would you not want to listen to Elvis or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? That's crazy. They're great. You know, it was a, a great scene there. Yeah, and I think that's that's revealed in a lot of the music that that comes out. I mean, for instance, you know, the suburbs kind of have this marriage of high and low art Right. And Soul Asylum has these very kind of tender, heartfelt moments and then these real raucous, abrasive moments. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we loved, you know, we loved, uh, uh, you know, the Everly Brothers and we loved uh, the Beatles and we loved the Clash and the Sex Pistols. I mean, it was all it was all we just loved music. Tony, working in, in radio, but also being a musician, was that kind of 
because you know, I think we go through this transition maybe where we're buying records and we're reading magazines and then we start meeting musicians and kind of getting introduced to that world and, and learning the language of, of that. Was he kind of your entry into that as well? Not not really. But Tony was um, he was a hero of mine and I didn't know him uh, for a number of years. He did start shopping at the store and we developed a friendship then. But in the early days, he was just a voice on the radio or a guy I saw on stage. Uh, but but there were other musicians that that were regulars at Orfolk that I got to know. Um, I remember, for instance, um, Gary Luris, who is now the frontman of the Jayhawks. Uh, he shopped at our store for months before I even knew he was a musician. I remember Gary, what my first memory of, of meeting Gary was he was the guy who always came in asking us if we had any new bootlegs by The Who. So it's kind of funny that he's the alt-country rock king and um he's uh he was i i first knew him as a who fanatic um he plays it he played an sg in the early days because he loved alice cooper you know that's kind of a funny thing but anyway gary was a regular there and so many other musicians i mean that was another thing where you know the musicians gravitated there and um it became a big part of my growth i guess as a uh, working in music to get to know these people. And then next thing you know, we're starting a record label and I'm interfacing with them on a creative level, uh, on a on a, on a work level. It was, um, so I had a, a bit of a leg up there because of that. So when you started Twin Tone, I mean, there had been records that had come out of out of Minneapolis and so forth, but you all were kind of writing the book as you went along, right? I mean, did you have anybody who was kind of guiding you? Uh, we did not. I mean, we made it up. We really were flying by the seat of our pants. I mean, you you saw what other independent labels were doing in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And we wanted, we felt that we had uh, uh, songwriters and singers and musicians who were every bit as good as what we were hearing from New York or London. And with all the other independent labels springing up all over the place, it was pretty inevitable that we would, uh, there would be one in Minnesota. And I think that it, it, we've kind of said it as a joke for years, but Paul Stark, Charlie Hallman, and I, who started the label, actually used to say, we didn't feel like we really started a label. We felt like we were forced into existence by the sheer number of incredible bands in Minneapolis. I mean, beginning, first and foremost, you, you always have to start with the Suicide Commandos during that era. They were, uh, you can't overstate their importance. But after that, um, you know, a group called Flamingo were a fairly straight ahead rock and roll band that everybody thought were going to be the next band to be signed to a national deal. And it just never happened. It still confounds me that it didn't happen. They were so great. And then there was my favorite of all. Um, I mean, I liked all of these artists um, very, very much, but but probably my personal favorite was a guy named Kurt Olmsted, uh, went under the name Curtis A in later years. And he had a band initially back in those days called Thumbs Up. And they were the first local band that I saw that hit me as hard as some of the records that I loved. And that for me was very much a light bulb going off over my head. It was, oh my gosh, there are artists, there are musicians in Minneapolis that, uh, you know, that that are on a level with the the records I'm buying, and that that was a revelation to me. Tell me a little bit about that moment where that that light bulb goes off, and and you realize that you're kind of in this epicenter of of incredible art. Well, it it probably started. Uh, 
before I realized there was an epicenter, before there was an epicenter, I think, um, and, and when I first saw Thumbs Up, it was 19, about 1974. I just started working at the record store in 73, uh, and they were playing Kitty Corner at the CC Club. Uh, actually, back then, it was called the CC Tap. It was before they had a hard uh, liquor license and just sold, um, you know, beer and, and uh, restaurant food. But... Um, when I saw them, I mean, it's not to make it a long story, but but I, I I'd run over to the to the bar to pick up a sandwich to go to bring back to the record store while I was working. And I didn't know they had live bands and I was still getting to know the neighborhood. Mostly had just been in the record store and not circulated the other businesses there on the corner. And when I walked in while I was waiting for my my food uh i heard a band in the back and so i stick my head around the corner and i'm looking and they were i remember very clearly they were doing tell her no by the zombies and it was before the zombies had had any kind of a renaissance and and uh, you know obviously it was a big hit song so it wasn't obscure by any stretch but i thought this is a cool choice uh but more interestingly after that they went out of uh that song the zombie song into i want to meet you by the crying shames and that was a band from Chicago that I just loved. They had had a big hit with the song Sugar and Spice. Um, I think it was a hit for the Searchers in, in England, for instance, first. But um, it became a hit in America by the Crying Shames. And I just, I loved the band. And I loved the song, I Want to Meet You. And when I heard that, I was like, this is sort of maybe a deep cut, so to speak. Uh, that that was like, that was a little you know, above and beyond what I would imagine a band in a bar doing. I thought this is like true music appreciation here, what they're doing. This is a not, I mean, I guess it was a single, but I don't know that it was a hit like Sugar and Spice was. So that was really a, a key moment for me. But as far as the epicenter, you know, the, the the town developing an epicenter, it wasn't until the commandos came along in 75 and early 76 that, that things really started to percolate. And that's when we had the suicide commandos and Flamingo and then, Kurt's band kind of mutated uh, a little bit with membership changes, and he brought in a guy named Bob Dunlap to play with him, and who who later uh, went on to be in the replacements, of course. But he, at the time, Bob came in and really upped the game for Kurt and his band. Bob was a very he was a great musician who had a traditional bass, but also a real left field kind of brain. And he just, his, so his guitar playing was very weird. We used to say, who, who, where did that weird Chinese sounding guitar come from? Um, how did he ever invent that? Um, and he also played with a thumb pick, which gave him a little bit different of a touch. So Kurt and Bob were about a, a two-headed monster. I remember I didn't really think of them as separate people for a long time. They were these two guys who led this incredible band called Thumbs Up. So that was really it. When the Commandos led the charge, Flamingo came in and Thumbs Up blossomed with the lineup change with, with Bob Dunlap coming in. That's when it became uh, something. There was a cauldron there that was brewing and it was really, really powerful. And so when we we thought we wanted to record those three bands, you know, we started a record label. Quickly, the Commandos became unavailable because they got signed to a major label deal Everybody thought Flamingo were going to a major label, so we didn't really pursue them. 
we did go after Kurt and were successful there. But then we brought in a band of guys that I'd gone to high school with called Fingerprints. And we brought in this other band that you mentioned, The Suburbs. And they became the the launch, those three groups. And we did three seven-inch EPs with them. And they were they were brilliant in three completely different ways. It was, to me, a great way of showing that this wasn't a one-trick pony record label. We had Kurt, who was kind of a weird mix of, or Thumbs Up, which was kind of a weird mix of Wilson Pickett and the British Invasion. Then we had Fingerprints, who, you know, would do uh, covers of Genesis songs or um, more complex David Bowie songs like Panic in Detroit or Roxy music songs. Um, and then we had the Suburbs, who were a little bit of uh, probably had a little bit of Roxy music as well. But then they also had some more visceral kind of punk elements to them. So uh, they were more of an art rock band. And uh, yeah, so it was just yeah, it really was um, a, 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 a scene that developed and, and an epicenter developed because of those three groups. That's really where it began. Yeah, I just you know this is this is more observational, but I think um, you know Bob Dunlap, of course, who later became Slim. I think that um, on his second solo album, especially, you can kind of get a sense of that real arty kind of avant-garde guy who also likes a really tender sweet country tune exactly exactly i, I mean you're you're you really um you, you you are very aware of the scene I'm, I'm i'm impressed with how well you know all these other artists so that's cool and and that second slim record for me was such a joy to be a part of um you know the first one we really went in and and recorded it as as uh, you know you know, it was basic, more of a basic rock and roll record. But uh, by times like this, you know, he'd started uh, tinkering more in his basement with tracks and then bringing them into the studio. And and yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was an amazing period. I, I wish that we could have made several more records. Uh, I, I chased him for a long time. I tried to start making records with him in the late 70s, but he wasn't ready to do it yet. And then got into the replacements and that of course took him away for several years, and um, but in the early '90s, I was able to rope him into making those records. So that was, you know, huge, huge fun. I I wondered if um, you felt like like I listened to that Spooks record, and I feel like there is some influence that bled into, especially the early replacements. Did you get a sense that that Curtis A had or Spooks had any sort of influence on the replacements? I don't really, you know. I think they their influence on the replacements would have been kind of like the commandos in that they broke down some barriers that allowed the replacements to exist. But, you know, Westerberg in particular was not a big fan of those bands. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like he actively disliked them, but he could be critical of them. And, you know, he was going another direction. You know, he'd been in bar bands. He was primarily a lead guitar player before the replacements. And and so he was, when when I met him, he was just beginning to become a, a songwriter and and, um, and a front man. Um, and I think you probably know the story where when the replacements were first starting, they had another singer. And, and Paul actually pulled that singer aside and said, hey, the rest of the guys can't stand you. I think you're really good, but... You know, and so the guy left and Westerberg took over the, you know, the 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 front man lead singer position. So um, it was kind of a funny time uh, in that respect. But um, I don't I don't see Spooks as a musical influence. I do see 
especially Bob Dunlap was so supportive of all of the young bands. And he's always been that a little bit of the old man from the mountain, even though he wasn't all that much older. He's a couple years older than me. And I was considered one of the older guys, but, but he, um, uh, he, he was always so generous with his thoughts and his time and his advice with the, with the younger band. So he really, I think that uh, probably more Tommy uh, became friends with Bob than, than Paul became friends with Bob. Paul wasn't very social um, and Tommy was a real social person. And uh, he hung around our record store and hung around at my apartment a lot more. And so he got to know some of these musicians. He became good friends with guys in the suburbs and and Bob Dunlap and and others. So, but uh, so I guess I'd I'd have to say just to answer your question, I don't hear a lot of spooks in the replacements, except that um, they did demonstrate that you could do a broad, you could pull from a broad palette, and and because a lot of a lot of things, people there, you know, it's the time of the Ramones where. You know, people thought, oh, you should just sound like one thing all the time. Much as I love the Ramones, I found that a little tiresome. I think it, it demonstrated that there was a you could do a broader kind of music if you wanted to. This this kind of has to be my my last question. This kind of musical omnivore sort of idea that we talked about earlier with uh, with Tony Glover and of course you. How important do you think that is to kind of? Kind of having any sort of longevity, you know, either on the business side of music or as a musician themselves. How important is it to kind of draw from all those places? Well, I think that it probably it, it probably has uh, some benefits and some disadvantages because I think there are I, and I've heard A and R people give this kind of advice to artists over the years at, at various times where it's like, um, oh. I want to say like even Tommy Stinson's early records when he was, you know, still with Sire, you know, they were trying to guide him into, you know, keeping it a little more rough and, you know, rowdy, uh, you know, to keep in line with the replacements. But Tommy also loved Squeeze and, and you know, other pop art, the Beatles and things. And so, you know, he... He had a, a variety of things and he was discouraged from doing that. So I think the musical omnivore thing to me as a music listener is essential that you understand a broad kind of music. And I think that even if you don't do, you know, something that's say maybe a progressive rock kind of thing, knowing about progressive rock informs your own writing and can make your own writing and performing stronger. So I think it works both ways. I think that uh, I think sometimes a myopic view and having a recognizable sound that people can count on is a good thing for customers, uh, for for audience and record buyers. And other times um, it can be like, um, you know, I don't know. I was reading a story in the paper some years ago where Neil Strauss used to write for the New York Times, uh, was interviewing a girl in a record store and um, said, what kind of music do you like? And she, and she said, well, I love Usher. And he said, oh, well, Usher's got a new album coming out. Are you excited about that? And she said, well, I already have an Usher album. Why would I want another one? You know, so it's like, it's, it's kind of like a, you know, that's the way some people think about stuff, but other people would, you, you know what I'm saying? It's, uh, it's, um, 
there are, I think, fair weather music fans, and then there are music fans that really want to dive in and and experience as much as they can. And so you've got different types of listeners that dictate trends and dictate sales and all that other stuff, and and uh, makes it difficult for some of us, I think, in some ways. Well, listen, but mentors are mentors are so important. I mean, you know, I. I when I was a kid, I remember picturing the guy at the radio station who got all the records sitting in a room with records stacked floor to ceiling. And he was the one that had to go through every one of them and pick out the best to play for me. And uh, that that's a vision that I still have to some degree when I read Mojo or uh, when I talk to somebody like you, who's an experienced radio person. It's it's a um, you know, you you you're you're hungry to know all of this uh, all of the different ins and outs and sides of, uh, of the music. I'm Jed Bodwin, and you've been listening to Into Music from the KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our guest has been Peter Jesperson, author of Euphoric Recall, a half-century as a music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker, which is available wherever books are sold. Our theme music is composed and performed by Torn Anderson. Our digital producers are Carly Cooper, Beth Golay, and Hugo Fan. Production assistance is provided by Fletcher Powell. You can learn more about Into Music at KMUW.org and email us at info at KMUW.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.